G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles questions about the biblical giants. We have got a killer episode this week. Was that a pun? Oh, I've been dying to say it. So tell us what we're looking at in this week's uh, Bible study. We're talking about the murder of Abel. Today we're going to address one of the great mysteries of the Bible. And we're also going to open a can of worms that you might not have even thought about before as we once again smash through the Sunday School understandings of the Scripture and get at the core of the message from the biblical author. Once again, we're in Genesis chapter 4. And this time we are not going to bite off a massive chunk of scripture like we did last time. Instead, we're going to focus all our attention for this episode on verse 8. So let's have a look at it now. And I'll read from the ESV. Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You reckon there were any crows in that field? Uh, Crows, I have... No idea, and I'm not even uh, sure I want to know why you're asking, to be honest. You know what they call a group of crows, right? Called a mm-hmm. murder of crows. Oh, boy, I should have seen that one coming. So it could have been a murder witnessed by another murder. You're killing me! Oh, that's not even funny. You know I like to make witty titles for the episodes, right? And, and this time I decided I was going to call this episode Out of Left Field, because it's like that expression in baseball that implies that Something unexpected is coming, and we certainly have something unexpected in this episode. I don't usually use American idioms because I'm very proud of my Australian heritage, but it just doesn't work to use an equivalent expression from the game of cricket and say something like, out of silly mid-off or out of backward square leg. Yes, I have a very uh, loose understanding of what they are, so I imagine most of our listeners would struggle worse than me. Sorry, I'm, I'm just happy it's cricket season. Now, I looked at a whole bunch of Bible translations, and it's interesting that I couldn't find any that actually translate the Hebrew for the verb in that first sentence. Every Bible translation that I looked at featured a gloss. In case you're not sure what that means, it's called a gloss when a translator uses terms that smooth over an apparent difficulty in the text rather than creating awkwardness by translating directly and leaving the text hard to understand. So you're not getting a strictly accurate translation, but you're supposed to be getting something that conveys the meaning that the translator believes to be intended. What that means is that the verb there isn't actually a phrase like talked with or spoke to or told or something like that. If we're going to read it correctly, the best translation would give us the word said, assuming, of course, that we're using that Hebrew lemma correctly. But the word said creates difficulty in our text because if we put it in there instead of talked with, told or something like that, we create a question for ourselves that doesn't have an answer. Okay, so what uh, what question is that? What did Cain say? I don't know, but I asked first, what question is that? What did Cain say? You can't answer my question or what? I did. The answer to your question is what did Cain say? What did Cain say? That's the question? That's the answer to your question. I'm confused. Uh, But that does have an answer. I've got it right here on my Bible. It says right here. And you, dear listener, might be saying to yourself, no, no, it does have an answer. And I've got it right here in my Bible. It tells us that Cain said to Abel, let's go out into the field. And that's probably the best way to know that the Bible you're reading is based on a late translation such as the Septuagint or the Vulgate or any one of a variety of others that arose in or later than the Second Temple period. And again, what you're looking at is a translator's gloss. And a gloss, like you said, a a bit where the translators try to make it easier to understand because the text is is somewhat difficult. Yeah, you see, there's a problem when we translate the Hebrew directly and use the word said, because naturally that means we're about to be told what Cain said. We don't have that information in the Hebrew text. So our translators knew that they had a problem to solve, And they also considered that there might be another problem to solve here, which is the fact that God had just mentioned an opening when he spoke to Cain, which we assume was the entrance to Eden, since that was mentioned earlier. But then as the story continues, the brothers are out in the field. So we have two problems, one being that we don't know what Cain said, and the other being that we don't know how the story transitions from one setting to another. And the translators did some thinking about this and came out with some pretty good ways to smooth over the text and solve this little conundrum, or two conundrums. Canundra? Is that a thing? It's uh, it's definitely another thing. 
So they figured out the best way to get around this is to supply what they figured Kane would have said in such a way that it explains the change of setting. And the logical thing that Kane would have said is, let's go out to the field. Boom, problem solved. Now we know what Kane said, and we know how they ended up out in the field. And that's all good, except that it doesn't appear in the text, so it's completely made up. So it would appear that this interpretive option has solved some problems in the text, but actually what it does is fail to address the way that the situation escalates from Cain being upset about the reception of his sacrifice to murdering his brother. Because whether we just read this as Cain talking to his brother or saying something fairly innocuous like, let's go out to the field, we're really given no indication as to the nature of the relationship between the brothers at this point. It makes things look like Cain is being deceptive by masking his intentions toward Abel. But is he really? We don't know. Perhaps if we could have some certainty around what Cain actually said, then that might help us to fill in the blanks. But as I said, that information is not supplied, and we will never know the answer to that. So by now you must be thinking, well, gee, Tim, that was an awful lot of build-up to just turn around and say we don't know. You're supposed to be the guy with the answers. So thanks for nothing. Yeah, thanks for nothing. Well, since I have a reputation to uphold, and you're right, I didn't take you all through all of this just to turn around and say we don't know, I'm going to give you what I think is the solution to all these problems. Famous last words. Well, that's uh, that's better than nothing. For those who came in late in our previous episode, we had an issue in the text where there was a particular Hebrew lemma that was usually considered to be just a grammatical marker and not a spoken word, but the translators had chosen to use it as a word. Every so often we come across these problems where there are only so many Hebrew words, but the vocabulary is actually larger in its oral form than it is in its written form, which means that some words can mean more than one thing because they're being used in different ways. This is actually really common. Are you about to uh, foist another chunky, delicious word of Hebrew grammar upon us? I, I sense that you are. Yes. So what I'm suggesting is... Perhaps there's more than one way to use the word which is translated as said. And to make my point, I'm going to give you a few examples and demonstrate where this really helps us to sort out some textual issues in translations of the Bible, not just in this passage, but some others as well. Briefly quoting from a journal article on this, called, What Did Cain Say to Abel? Reviewed Works, Some Reflections on the Text of the Pentateuch by S. Zeitlin. And believe it or not, that entire mouthful was just the title. This is a review written by Albert Ehrman. So this review was published in the Jewish Quarterly Review, Volume 53, number two, from October 1962, pages 164 to 167, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. So here's a quote. Hebrew, like many other languages, contains a class of verbs and nouns possessing one meaning and its diametric opposite. An excellent example of a polaric noun in Hebrew is the word chesed. It has the meaning on the one hand of goodness and loving kindness, as in Genesis 40, verse 14, and on the other, a reproach or a shameful thing, as in Leviticus 20, verse 17. And that's the end of the quote, but now I'm going to show you the example that Ehrman mentioned. Okay, so here's the text from Genesis 40, verse 14. So you can see this for yourself. This is Joseph talking to the chief cupbearer after interpreting his dream in the prison. Here's the text. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. And now we have Leviticus 20 in verse 17. With the same word, instead of being translated as kindness, it is translated as disgrace. And here it is, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. I don't think that's kindness. No. Um, all right, so without going into that in any great depth, I think you should be able to see why it's quite legitimate to translate this word differently and not try to reconcile the two uses of this term with the same meaning. We have the identical word used in both situations, and it obviously means the opposite in those two examples. So I'm bringing this up because that's not the only example of a situation where this occurs with other words. And we have this phenomenon in English as well, so it's not unique to ancient Hebrew. We call words like that contronyms. As an example, we have the word fast which obviously would imply something that moves quickly 
in most situations, but then the word fast can also mean secure and immovable, as in fasten your seatbelt or make sure the anchor holds fast. So you can see how the same word on paper can mean two completely opposite things, and you can't get a single definition to explain both usages. They're actually different words, and they just look the same on paper. Another example would be the word cleave, which can mean either to split apart or to bring together. There are lots of these, and as I mentioned, Hebrew has them too. And so does this kind of thing happen a lot in Hebrew? Yeah, it does, because the vocabulary is really quite small. There would have been something like seven to 10,000 words in the language back then. Compare that to English now, where we have more than 100,000 words, and we still have this problem even with a vocabulary of that size. That's, uh, that's unreal, really. Yeah, so let's get back to the point, which is the use of this verb in Hebrew, which is translated usually as said. What if it isn't that word at all, but another word which looks the same on paper? Let's have a look at some examples, because it's just easier if I show you these than try to explain it. Let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Now in this situation we have the same verb at the start of verse 10, which is translated as tell or say. This is the verb that we find in our reading in Genesis 4. And as usual, we're seeing it translated in such a way that indicates speaking to somebody. But there's a feature in the construction of the text here, which is why I included verse 11 in the reading. And what we're supposed to be seeing here is a parallelism between verses 10 and 11, where on the one hand, we have something good for the righteous and something bad for the wicked on the other hand. Now, we had no trouble identifying woe to the wicked, but when it came to that first part in verse 10, we just got tell the righteous, which seems a little bit confusing given the parallel construction. They don't really bounce off each other as opposites. Given the context, what we should be seeing is something more like the verbs to praise or to exalt, something like that. Okay, and I think I can, can see that there, but how do we know that it's a legitimate interpretation? You wouldn't find that just looking in your English Bible. That's a fair question, and while it is a really rare situation, it has been interpreted that way by modern scholars and rabbis in the past. A couple of examples would be Rabbi Elijah the Gaon of Vilna and Eugenio Zoli, PhD. Actually, that last guy, Zoli, is interesting because he used to be the chief rabbi in Rome back in the period of the Second World War before he converted to Christianity as a result of his being protected through the Nazi occupation of Italy by the Pope, who at that time was Pope Pius XII, but I digress. Let's have a look at another one. Let's go to the book of Esther. And look at chapter 1, verse 18. This is the bit where the king's wife has dishonoured him. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. All right, so here once again, the translators have gone with say for the verb here, and they've actually had to add the phrase the same, so it reads say the same. Because once again, there was confusion around why you would just say, and then there's nothing to say. So they had to add something in. When you remove the extra words, and you're just left with the verb say, we're faced with the same problem that we find here in our text in Genesis 4. But if we went with the same reading that we got when we looked at Isaiah 3, and used a verb like praise or extol, we'd really mess this passage up because it's very clear that the people in this verse are really unhappy with the person they're talking about. When you see words like contempt and wrath in play, you just know that praise is probably the furthest thing from their minds, and yet we have the exact same Hebrew word being used. So this shows us a context where the same word, usually translated as say, should be something like despise or hold in contempt. You can see how this would be the opposite of something like praise or extol. It's worth noting as well that this particular example of usage here in Esther is chronologically quite late, which could indicate it's a development of the language over time, and that would explain why it's not commonly found in the majority of the Hebrew Bible, which was written earlier. We also have examples where this same word could be translated as to be angry. And again, that would not be out of place in our text in Genesis 4. You can see that if you look behind the translation of Psalm 4, verse 4. In the ESV, you get this. It says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. You might have seen this verse before and wondered how you get the phrase, be angry in the first half of the verse, and then the second half says, ponder. 
How does that even work? But that's what you do when you get this word, which would normally be translated as say. And if you're trying to put that into a context where a person is dwelling on their own thoughts or contemplating what's in their heart, then the word ponder seems better than talk to yourself or something like that. But keeping in line with the first half of the verse, if we translate it as to be angry or something like that, then it seems to fit a lot better. Once again, the parallel construction of this passage informs us as to how best to interpret it. And we get another example. If we go back to the book of Esther again, and this time to chapter 7, where we see the same word. And again, we would be better off reading it as to be angry rather than to say. This is the part where Queen Esther is about to reveal Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? You might look at that and think, well, what's the issue? We have the verb for said, and then we actually get what he said, so what's the problem? And the problem is, the word said actually appears twice in the original text, and the translators have opted to leave one out so that it makes more sense. But again, if we understand one of those two occurrences as being the same as our example from Psalm 4, then we read the verse like this. Then King Ahasuerus became angry and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And now we've managed to use the original text without doing any violence to it and get more sense out of our English translation. And that's what we're trying to do with this situation in Genesis 4, of course. The aim is to use the original text in such a way that without making changes to it, we're able to make sense of it and really let the original speak for itself. I like that reading of it because it stays true to the text and maintains consistent meaning, but it just illustrates it better. So to bring this back to our reading, let's reconsider Genesis 4 verse 8. We could read this in either of two ways, given what we've just learned. Option number one goes like this. Cain despised Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Or our second option would put it like this. Cain became angry with Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So we've got these two options. And to be honest with you, I don't know if it really matters which one you prefer because both of them work. But if I had to pick one, I would lean towards despised rather than became angry with, and only because, in my view, the pattern of Hebrew usage for the time period in question leans that way. It doesn't eliminate the possibility of the other option, so ultimately it's a moot point. We've got to remember that these texts were written to be read aloud, and you're going to hear that word and think of all the options, not just one of them, and that's going to work out just fine, as long as you're hearing it in Hebrew, of course. So there you go. To answer the question of what Cain really said to Abel, the answer is, he didn't say anything. Talk about taking a long time to say nothing. Can't argue with that. Let's move from nothing to something, because now we're going to get into something more interesting. But what could possibly be more interesting than quibbling over Old Testament grammar? Huh? How about getting a fresh perspective on the murder or sacrifice of Abel? Uh, what do you mean, murder or sacrifice? Didn't they make sacrifice, then murder? Nope, they gave offerings, and then later the killing of Abel occurred. But I'm saying his murder was a sacrifice. No way. How do you get that reading out of the text? We're about to find out. Let's take another look at our text and read Genesis 4, verse 8 again. Cain angrily despised his brother. See what I did there? And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There you go. I thought I'd see how it sounded using the definitions that we just worked out. Anyway... There are a couple of features of this verse that I want to point out, and they won't seem significant yet, but I'm going to be building a case from my point of view here, and you'll see how these become important later. The first one I want to mention is the location. We're told that the brothers were in the field. That's not going to raise eyebrows immediately because we expect them to be in the field. They're both farmers. But we'll keep this in mind as we continue to investigate this murder. The other thing that I want to point out here is an unusual choice of phrasing when it says that Cain rose up against his brother. It's unusual because in all the instances of killing and murder that we have in the Bible, it is extremely rare to see this idea of rising up against someone. Normally they just kill them. You don't have this rising up language, but you do get it from time to time. Usually this phrase to rise up just means something like standing or getting out of bed in the morning, but it has a fairly wide semantic range. And I don't think the text is trying to tell us that this was Cain's way of getting out of bed. It can be used to suggest hostility against someone, and that would seem quite logical in the face of things. That's probably the most common reading of it in the context of conflict or violence. You might have heard people use the expression, a high-handed sin, or do something high-handedly. 
And it means to do something with intention. Like if you're going to hit someone, for example, there's a difference between a quick slap to the face and a big punch to the jaw. A quick little jab or a slap is something that you can do as an immediate reaction without forethought. But if you're going to pull back your arm and prepare a deliberate blow, then that is something premeditated and willful, not just reactionary. So that line of thinking has formed part of the traditional interpretation of this passage. So far we have two observations and two really inconspicuous and easily explained features of the text which don't really give us much on their own. So let's have a look at the wider context of the passage. We talked a fair bit about this last week. I mentioned that the offerings given by Cain and his brother were appeasement offerings at the end of the days of working the ground and tending flocks. If you missed that, you really need to go back and listen to the previous episode. And the critical part of the story up to this point is the bit where we find out that Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was not. And I mentioned that the way you knew if your offering was accepted was by waiting to see what kind of crop or what kind of flock you had next season. If you were doing well, then you knew that your offering had been accepted. And if things were not working out for you, then you would know that your offering had not been well received. So Cain realises that his offering was not appreciated by God and he's not happy about it at all. I might just add at this point, although I did mention it last week, that this is a matter of life and death. There's no social security in the ancient Near East. If your crops fail or your herds die, then you're going to starve. So you don't take this kind of thing lying down. Let's not forget that in the ancient world it was just understood that there were many gods, not just one. So you need to make an offering to someone, you need it to be well received because if you don't get a divine blessing upon your land, especially after you've had a succession of bad seasons, which is the situation that Cain is dealing with, then you're going to die. Cain made an offering to Yahweh alongside his brother and it didn't work. So he's decided he's going to have to do something a bit more forceful. Now we talked a little bit about the nature of sacrifice last week, but it's worth going into it in a bit more depth this time. A sacrifice is not just some way of communicating to your chosen God that you want to have some kind of relationship and be on good terms with them. A sacrifice is a ritual, and a ritual is about performing symbolic actions in the material realm that reflect what you want to happen in the heavenly realm, with the desired effect being that what happens in the heavens is going to benefit you on the earth. Is that what they mean then when they say, as above, so below, like you enact a heavenly reality in order to have that reflected in your earthly reality? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. If you want good crops to grow, then you bring your produce and you offer it to your God. The way that is done is by taking a portion of the offering and eating it and taking another portion of it to burn. You eat some because eating is always done in a communal setting and this is how you show a relationship with your God. You burn some because in the mind of ancient people, and I've talked about this in some detail in my book, to give something to God, you have to make it unusable for mankind. Food by itself can be eaten, but when you burn it, it turns to smoke, which rises up to the heavens, and humans get no benefit from smoke. If it's no good to you, then it must be only useful to God. That's the logic behind burnt offerings. But things get a bit more serious when you don't just want a good crop, but what you're really after is favourable weather in order to be able to grow anything, because now you're going beyond basic fertility and you're looking for someone who can control the weather. As I said, the sacrifices go beyond merely petitions and fellowship because they get into ritual enactment. And it's in that space that things start to get interesting. Cain is looking for rain, so he's got to find some way to demonstrate what he wants while he offers a sacrifice that's more valuable than just last year's produce. You remember the story about the prophet Elijah and his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. There's like 450 of these prophets of Baal, and they're trying to get Baal to break the drought and bring rain on the land. And to do this, they perform a ceremony which involves cutting themselves and the shedding of blood. They obviously expect this to work. But of course, in this particular situation, it doesn't happen for them. I guess I just really wanted to point out here that they actually did expect it to work. So let's get back to Cain here. Cain needs to symbolically wet the ground while he offers a divine being some kind of a living sacrifice. According to the culture of the day, that's the expected way to go about making such a request, and it has symbolic significance on many levels. One being that the shedding of blood on the ground would represent the pouring of rain upon the land. Another being that a life needed to be given in order to receive life in return. And as the Bible teaches quite clearly, blood in itself represents life because it is essential to life. That's what it means when it says that the life is in the blood. So it's not like your soul is in your blood or something? No, no. Have you got less of a soul if you bleed? Uh, like, you know, you, you lose some of your spirit every time you get a scratch. And I'd be a bit worried about my uh, my son today after coming off his push bike. You know, he's from 
lost a bit of his soul on the pavement. Um, now, it's definitely symbolic. So uh, we bring this back to the setting, which I mentioned before, and we find ourselves in the field, and that's where you have to be in order to make your intentions clear to the divine. If you want rain on your field, then you need to shed blood on your field. And just to tie up that other observation I made about the language of rising up, Another way that the phrase is used is in the sense of ratifying an agreement or covenant or something of that nature. That's exactly what's happening in the case of a sacrificial ritual. So that fairly innocuous phrase takes on new meaning when it's brought into the larger context of the story. So just to make it clear, I think that what we're seeing in this verse is a picture of Cain having become disillusioned and desperate after his sacrifice to Yahweh was rejected taking matters into his own hands and trying to use a bigger stick, so to speak, from his perspective. And he has resorted to an act of human sacrifice as a last-ditch attempt to bring fertility to the land. Now, I've seen scholars actually taking this approach and using it to defend human sacrifice as a ritual accepted by Yahweh and by the biblical authors, believe it or not. There are people who actually think this is what our God wants. These are academics. Obviously, they're not believers, and I wouldn't call them brothers. I can give you the references so you can see these papers written about this, but I don't think that's helpful or edifying, so I'm not going to do that. If you really must, you can search for these things and find them easily enough. But I think that the text is quite explicit, that God was not pleased and that this sacrifice was not seen positively or celebrated, as some would argue. I'm going to go further and say that I don't believe there is evidence that this sacrifice was even offered to Yahweh in the first place. I think that Cain took it upon himself to make a sacrifice to a different God. And you can see that quite plainly in the text if you continue reading. Now, in a minute, I'm going to show you how the New Testament supports this reading of the text. But before we do, I want to show you something in Leviticus about another thing we mentioned last week, which was the sin offering. And again, for those who came in late, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you'll have no frame of reference for this. So I'm going to recommend that you go back and listen to the previous episode. So does this mean that you're finally going to answer the question that I asked last week, the question about why Cain might need a sin offering? Yeah, that's exactly where we're going now. Leviticus chapters 4 and 5 is where you want to go for this, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's two chapters, but I'll give you a bit of a flavour of it. The sin offering was not for things done intentionally against the law. There was no offering that could be given to make remedy for intentional sin, but if you happened to sin unintentionally, then you could present a sin offering. In the case of unintentional sin, the offering would be a particular animal which was butchered and then part of the animal was given as an offering and the other part was burned so as to be destroyed. So Leviticus 4 goes through all that in various different circumstances concerning who did wrong and what has to be done about it. Then you get into chapter 5 and there are some other situations presented where a sin offering would be appropriate. And these situations include failing to come forward when called upon to give testimony or unknowingly touching dead or unclean things and realising it later. So it's accidental or not realised at the time, but then discovered later. Yeah, yeah. And you might be thinking that having gone through all of those different situations and scenarios, none of these really apply to Cain. You know, Tim, I was just thinking, none of these really apply to Cain. So in light of what we were just talking about with regard to Cain being quite prepared to offer his brother as a human sacrifice to another god in order to get a good harvest, I want you to consider a few verses here in Leviticus 5 and see if you agree that we might have a contender here, because... There is one more situation in which a sin offering would be appropriate. I'm reading from verse 4 through 6. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Now, I mentioned last time that Cain's brother had prepared a sin offering and left it there for Cain at the entrance to sacred space. I think this was Abel not just looking out for his brother, but also desperately trying to preserve his own life in the vain hope, remember Abel's name means vanity, that Cain would have a change of heart and repent of the wickedness he had planned to carry out. But unfortunately, that was not to be. Wait a minute, you're saying that Cain might have said an oath or something? So did Cain really say something that the author just left it out because it was nasty or was he just being angry or despising his brother? Um, yes. Yes. It's, it's all of that. Well, this stuff is deep. Yeah. Now, I don't understand if you look at my interpretation of this situation here in Genesis 4, I'm not convinced because it's not the way this story is usually taught. 
But as I mentioned a minute ago, I'm going to show you that the authors of the New Testament saw it the same way. Let's have a look at what the Apostle John had to say about this in his first epistle. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 22. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And that's the end of the reading. There's just so much in this passage, and it starts obviously with the notion of brotherhood. We haven't really talked about brotherhood in the context of Genesis 4 yet, but what we need to know at the moment is that your fellow man is your brother. So it's not necessarily a biological connection that St. John is talking about. So we talked about how Cain despised and was angry with his brother. And now we can see St. John's expansion of that concept in this particular passage. Yeah, yeah. We also see here that Cain is referred to as being of the evil one. And again, it would be a mistake to treat that as a biological connection to the devil for reasons that I've already made abundantly clear so many times. Oh, so many times. So I'm just not going there. Yeah, thank you. But in case you missed it, please go back and listen to the first two episodes of this fourth season of the podcast where I go over a lot of material about the whole seed of the serpent thing. I will say this, though, as much as I have said in the past that being the seed of the serpent is little more than doing what the devil does, we can also see in this particular context where it is becoming apparent that Cain has made some kind of agreement with a divine being to sacrifice his brother's life for the sake of his own livelihood that belonging to the evil one could actually be a situation of covenant allegiance to the devil, as opposed to simply doing something that was wrong. There is something else going on in verse 15 where John uses the word murderer, which in Greek is specifically anthropoktonos. That's a technical term for a specific kind of killing. It only turns up twice in the New Testament. Both times it is used by John. The other occasion is John 8.44. Both times, it refers to someone who is said to be a son or sons of the devil. An interesting fact is that the phrase rarely turns up in classical Greek or even outside of the biblical literature. Euripides used it to describe how the cyclopes would consume human flesh, and also in the context of human sacrifice. Just to give you a little bit more on that, I'm going to quote from a journal article on this. It's called Slaughter, Fratricide and Sacrilege. Cain and Abel Traditions in 1 John 3 by John Byron. This was published in the journal Biblica, volume 88, number 4, from 2007, pages 526 to 535. So here's a brief quote from that article. The examples from Euripides' limited usage of Anthropoctonos suggests it was reserved for those types of murder that were viewed as particularly revolting. The killing of a family member could be viewed with the same repugnancy as would the sacrifice and or devouring of the victim. In the story of Iphigenia in Taurus, the heroine is a priestess of Artemis and her job consists of consecrating men to be put to death on the altar. The plot is framed around how she helps her brother Orestes to escape this fate. Such a use of Anthropoctonos by Euripides is interesting since both here and in First John, it is the potential act of fratricide that is central to the stories. If Virginia rescued her brother, Cain killed his brother. When combined with the Cain illustration in First John 3.15, the Anthropoctonos label would have been an effective condemnation of those who refused to follow the example of Christ. 
Moreover, since they follow the example of Cain and hate their brothers, they could be more properly called fratricides. That's the end of the quote. I really want to draw your attention to verse 16 in this reading where St. John draws a sharp contrast between Cain and Jesus Christ. Remember how I talked earlier about how Cain was supposed to be the guy who was going to set everything right in the world, the one that Eve was waiting for, the guy who had the hope of the world resting on his shoulders. Cain was supposed to be the person who would fix everything. St. John is making it very clear here that Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the one who did the right thing, and he shows us that by contrasting Jesus against Cain. Verse 16 says, By this we know love, that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Given that the apostle has just been talking about Cain, who laid down his brother's life for his own sake. Remembering that Cain's name means acquisition. It's clear that Jesus has done the reverse, and in so doing, has broken the pattern of the world exemplified in Cain in order to bring restoration. And the language of laying down his life is meant to evoke the sacrifices. St. John is using the language of sacrifice because he understands that the contrast between Jesus and Cain is one that fits the ritualistic sacrificial context of the original story in Genesis 4. It's like this was there that whole time. Yeah, Jesus laid down his own life for us, his brothers. In this way, we see Christ foreshadowed not in Cain, but in Abel, the good shepherd. I made that connection last week, but I didn't want to dwell on it there and give away what I had for this episode. St. John doesn't compare Abel to Jesus because obviously Jesus is infinitely superior. But you can see some tentative parallels there, especially when you look at verse 22 from our reading against the backdrop of the offerings presented by Cain and Abel. St. John says in verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now it was Abel whose offering was accepted, and we know why, according to Hebrews 11.4, which we looked at last week, while we're talking about the book of Hebrews and comparisons between Jesus and Abel, let's read Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We'll talk more in depth about the voice of Abel's blood when we get there in the course of our study. But again, just look at the language of ritual, sacrifice and covenant. This isn't accidental. These New Testament authors are drawing these comparisons from the text of Genesis 4. It's no surprise then to see the same pattern at work in the epistle of Jude who refers to the way of Cain in verse 11 of that letter. Here's the quote from Jude from verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of Cain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now Jude is talking here about the greed of the false teachers who have infiltrated the church in order to take advantage of the generosity of the Lord's people. And this is happening in the context of, you guessed it, religious rituals and sacrifices. Look how Jude talks about the animalistic, unreasoning, selfishness and greed of these people, and he compares them to Cain. Because Jude understands that Cain had no problem with sacrificing his own brother in order to ensure food for himself. So what about Jesus? Did he have anything to say about this? And who was Cain sacrificing to? Mm, Jesus didn't miss this same reading of the text of Genesis 4. Look at his condemnation of the religious leaders here in Matthew 23. This is from verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. 
you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, Jesus' reference to Abel wasn't just for effect. As I mentioned last week, Abel's name means vanity or breath, something fleeting and temporary. Abel is the shepherd of the flock. He represents the prophets who bring God's breath, God's word, God's fleeting, wasted and vain warnings to a stubborn and unrepentant flock. And the mention of murder in conjunction with Abel is obviously meant to make the scribes and Pharisees realise that Jesus is comparing them to Cain, the guy who killed his own brother in the guise of religion, for the sake of feeding himself and acquiring more for himself. Well, if you can't see it after all of this, you'd have to be blind. Yeah, well, that's four New Testament authors and Jesus himself all in agreement that Cain's sin was not merely anger or violence. In fact, neither anger or violence are particularly in view here as sins. Cain's error was that his faithlessness toward Yahweh culminated in allegiance to another god, which resulted in the sacrificial killing of Abel for the sake of Cain's greed. Yeah, it's not about uh, how Cain brought salad to a barbecue. Right. I might point out as well, while we're talking about what this story isn't telling us, but this story is not here to tell us that violence is wrong or that killing is a sin or this is how sin happens. Well, that's true, of course, but it isn't the point. Don't forget we're reading this in a really late context chronologically, or at least in or after the exile. Everyone knows what sin is. This isn't an origin story. Again, this is an archetypal story. Remember how the chapter begins with the man who still doesn't have a name. He's all of us. Cain is us too. He's our children. He's the product of the desire to rule and to acquire and to assure our own security and posterity. This is our way of life apart from Christ. And regarding the identity of the divine being that Abel ended up being sacrificed to, I think that's answered pretty well for us by a couple of things. Number one being the context that's been laid out for us in this passage, and second thing being the New Testament comments regarding Cain. So contextually speaking, we have a situation where Cain's crops have failed, possibly for the second year in a row by this stage. So he desperately needs rain, and this is why he would call upon a god of weather and fertility in order to restore the fruitfulness of the land. In the ancient Near East, particularly in Canaan, of course, which was the land which became the land of Israel, there was a well-known storm god who was also known as a fertility god, and that was, of course, Baal, uh, who was also known in ancient Mesopotamia. So into the exilic period, the first audience of scripture would have had no trouble identifying Baal as the natural choice for Cain to have made that sacrifice in the interest of getting not only favourable weather, but fertility in his land. And when you look at what the New Testament has to say about Cain, we have some strong statements concerning his allegiance. From 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And again, Matthew 23, verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I think these passages make it pretty clear that Cain has been connected very strongly here with the one identified in the New Testament as the evil one or the devil, and when Jesus mentions serpent and vipers, we see a connection back to Genesis 3 and the serpent of Eden. So you see now why Jesus is portrayed as the one who gets it right and achieves what Cain could not, what, what we cannot. Jesus laid down his own life for our sake. And he asks of us that we give him our allegiance rather than taking the way of Cain. All right. Well, I can see how that works in light of Jesus for us as Christians. But what was the story supposed to be telling its first audience who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, how did this story have significance for them particularly? 
That's a great question to ask. What we're seeing here is a picture of what happens when we fail to love our brother or our fellow man and we take matters into our own hands to secure what we need, resulting in unfaithfulness to God in the interest of personal gain. And this unfaithfulness and disloyalty, the violence and the shedding of innocent blood and the greed of the ruling class is condemned by God as one of the reasons for God's judgment on the Jews who were exiled to Babylon. And we can see that in the historical records of the Bible, particularly in 2 Kings 21. So this is 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we also have this in Psalm number 106 uh, from verse 36. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the Shadim. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. So the Cain and Abel story shows that all of the people who were the audience of this story, and that includes us by extension, we're guilty of these things to some degree in one way or another. That is so good, but I think we're going to have to wrap up uh, a study at this point and pick it up next week because it's time for us to get some answers to our lovely listeners' giant questions. All right, let's do that. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Andrea asked, what about female Nephilim? No one ever talks about that. Were they all male? Hmm. All right, you ready for this? Were all the Nephilim male? I think this one has a pretty simple answer. Just because they don't get mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they didn't exist. And you've got pretty much a 50% chance that whatever offspring they had were going to be female. Traditionally, the Nephilim were around for about 1,200 years. So I would say that's plenty of time for them to have had female offspring who would have perpetuated the race. So did they have female giants? Absolutely. So there you go, Andrea. Thanks for the question. I realise that's a very brief answer, but there's not really much I can say beyond the fact that the ancient sources do talk about the Nephilim breeding, having children, and making some kind of practice of aborting their own fetuses. So it sounds like there were female giants giving birth to more of their kind, and you can read more about that in the book of the giants. There are translations online if you want to have a look. It's kind of interesting from a scientific standpoint, we observe that boys tend to grow up to be taller than their mothers. And if two parents are of equal height, the boys will be taller than both parents because the mother's genetic makeup, which makes her as tall as her husband, is going to make a bigger contribution to the genetics of the children. And that's the situation with ordinary human populations. We can only speculate about what that would look like in a population of giants. Yeah, it's been a pretty uh, pretty big episode, so we'd better wrap it up there and we'll continue our study and tackle more of your giant questions next week we'll catch you then all right see you later it's time to wrap up today's episode but if you want more don't forget to get yourself a copy of answers to giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stepp on Amazon. Paperback, check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Go to giantanswers.com for more.
Please welcome to the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I'm eating a roll of licorice. Yeah, gross. So next year's the big one. Yeah, 20 years. Gonna uh, go on a world cruise or something? Uh, we are planning to go to Queensland. So not exactly world cruise. Well, it's in the world. Uh, yes, it is a place in the world. Could just say it's, uh, you know, the first part of a world cruise. and uh, It's a one-stop. Yeah, and, and you know, every... Uh, Every 20 years, we might visit another Australian state and then we might look at uh, maybe, you know, in, say, 140 years, uh, we might go to New Zealand or something. Yeah. That sounds uh, reasonable. Absolutely. Bourbon and licorice actually go together really well. Well, I like one of those things. Uh, but yeah, right. things, are pretty, things are pretty hairy over there, so he's going to India and Sri Lanka and, and Manipur. Manip- yeah. um, I'm hairy everywhere. Yeah, I'm not. And after Let's this stupid jabber. Let's just rip it off like a Band-Aid. Speaking of Band-Aids, I'd put a few on uh, a few. my boy, uh, Dylan. Uh, oh, this yeah. evening, he uh, went for a bike ride and took all the bark off his knee. Ouch. I, I showed him my legs with numerous scars from BMX riding. and Oh, yes. Uh, he didn't feel so bad after that. Good. It's good. You've got to give uh, the pain context. That's right. Yes. Soon, son, you'll develop mighty knees like me. That's right. One day you too will grow a goatee just to hide the scars in your face. <laughs> uh, nice.